Father, uh, we're so grateful. What a, what a beautiful time this morning to magnify your name in corporate worship with other believers and saints. Such a privilege, Father, to do that. Uh, not so uh, around the world this morning, not so even in our own country this morning in some states. So we don't take this for granted. We, we love it. We cherish it. Uh, we we want to do more of it. Sorry, we ask for your mercy, Father, your favor. Um, Lord, would you, would you stop this disease? Would you stop this virus? Uh, Lord, we trust you with it. Maybe you're drawing people closer to you through it. Uh, God, we want to be used by you in, in, in whatever way that is, even if that's through suffering. So we ask for your mercy and your grace. We ask for strength through these times. Uh, God, we ask for this morning that your spirit would fall on this place. Use Richard this morning and his words that have, that have come from you and your word this morning that you would penetrate our hearts, change us this morning, sanctify us through your word. May Jesus Christ be high and lifted up. May people see him as beautiful this morning. May you heal, heal spiritual blindness, spiritual deafness this morning through the power of your word. And may you be magnified in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. The most important question you'll ever ask in life is, how do you feel about God? Do you believe that he is good? Or do you believe that God is, is not good? Obviously, if you arrive at the latter conclusion that God is not a good God, you can't love him. You can't love a God who is not good. One of the most popular praise choruses of all time, God is so good, God is so good. He's so good to me, and it's well supported in Scripture, the goodness of the Lord. We saw in the past few weeks, six times in the book of Genesis, every time God added something new to creation, he affirmed that he did this out of his goodness when he created light and water, plants and animals, and man, every time he did it, he followed it with the statement of, this is good. But that's chapter one. Two chapters later, we see that this display of goodness has now been damaged, and what is remaining is not good. Marriage is harmed. Uh, the earth is now causing pain. Death is a part of the world. Man has become violent and sinful desires begin with everybody who is born. And this change from the greatness of God's goodness in chapter 1 to the catastrophic condition in chapter 3 is due to one act of rebellion. Genesis 2, 9, in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God commanded the man, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. And of course, we know they did eat of it. And God's promise, warning, you'll die, began to happen immediately, very much affirmed by a broad-ranging statement in the New Testament Sin entered the world, Romans 5, 12, through one man, and death through sin, and this way death came to all people. We're astonished as we look at how fast COVID-19 spread from China to uh, the countries of Europe, over to the West Coast, 
and all the way across the United States, and it just spread so rapidly. It did not spread nearly as rapidly as sin did. The moment Adam and Eve ate, death came to the entire planet. Earth began to die. Man began to die. So when you look at the contrast between chapter 3, the, the catastrophe, and chapter 1, the expression of goodness, forces me to ask two questions. Number one is, why did God allow mankind to ruin the world? Why did God allow man to mess up everything? Or we could say it like this. Why did God <clears throat> create a world where man was able to engage in self-destructive and social societal destructive behaviors. Many people, when approaching this question, say that God could not be good if he created a world where man's free will would bring injury to the world. But that's not true. The fact that evil exists does not point to God's badness. The fact of the existence of evil points to the fact that God is outrageously good. We defined the goodness of God several weeks ago as the generosity of God, the giving heart of God. And so we see with the presence of evil, God is so good and he's so loving and he's so giving that he even gave man the freedom, just gave it to him to turn away from the Lord's goodness. Many people ask the question, if God is sovereign over all things how is it that mankind, whom he, his will is for mankind to be holy, how is it that man is able to sin? In other words, how can God's sovereign will and man's human will coexist? And the answer is this. It is God's sovereign will that mankind be given the will to have the freedom of choice. That is, in God's sovereignty, he willed that man had the freedom to rebel against sovereignty. Hear that again. In God's sovereignty, he willed that man be given the freedom to rebel against his sovereignty. The book of James says, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So it is never God's will that man sins, but it is always God's will that man be given the freedom to rebel against God's sovereign command to be holy. A Boeing 747 is made up of six million different components, and if they're all not placed in the right order by the engineer's design, the the airplane is in trouble and pain will ensue. And likewise, whenever man chooses to do wrong, it's always going to lead to chaos, shame, and suffering. And it is never God's will that man experience chaos, pain, shame, and suffering. But it is always God's will that man be given the freedom to choose chaos, shame, and suffering. So God is so good, he is so giving that he gives man the right to reject him. Question number two, why did the punishment for man's choice have to be so 
severe. Let's think about what Adam and Eve were given. God gave them stars to look at, a sun to bask in, rivers to swim in, fruit to eat, and only one command. Don't eat from this particular tree. God had given them an infinite amount of goodness, and therefore rebelling against God caused them to be guilty of an infinite sin. That's why the severity of the punishment. We wink at sin. And that's why we do it over and over again. We don't realize how dishonoring it is to sin against the goodness of God. If God were to treat sin as lightly as we do, He would be guilty of treating sin as lightly as we do. It would be a declaration that He's not infinitely good and sin is not infinitely bad. If a criminal broke into your house tonight, beat you severely, took a knife and ripped through your furniture, took a baseball bat and smashed your TVs and your computers, and then left and stole your car and was later arrested and brought into a courtroom and you're standing by his side, what would you think of the judge who said, I just want all of us to forget that all of this ever happened and go home and we just need to get on with our lives? Is that a good judge or is that a bad judge? We live in a world where we want, we say, if God were good, he would not punish evil. And you just said, he's got to, because you would want him to do so, the judge to do so in your case. Yet we know if someone is really good, they will never be indifferent toward evil. Whenever a good man sees evil, especially when that evil is occurring against him. It's so easy to see. But whenever a good man sees evil, goodness within him cries out, something must be done to right this wrong. It is impossible to be good and not punish evil. If you do not hate evil, it is because you do not love good. The book of Genesis 18, 25 says, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And the answer is, of course, God will do right. He's not indifferent toward evil. He will always reward righteousness. He will always punish wickedness. Now, what God said to Adam and Eve in the Old Testament, God said to us in the New Testament, it's just a rephrasing of it. Romans 6.23, eat of the tree you die, the wages of sin, the outcome of sinful decisions is, is death. So God is so exceedingly good in inviting us to know Him, the punishment for rejecting the friendship of God is to be eternally separated from God. It is because God is good that the punishment is so severe. If God would have said that the consequences of sin are you don't get dessert for supper, then you would realize that God is not really that good and does not care much about evil. God's demand for justice is a good thing. Yet, His demand for justice would crush us if it were carried out in all of its wrath. So God, 
because he's exceedingly good, devised a plan where he could unleash his wrath against all evil and then protect the world from his wrath while maintaining his goodness as a judge. This is what completely blew the mind of the Apostle Paul in Romans 3, 26. He described God as being just and the one who justifies at the same time. That was the most spellbinding statement that Paul ever contemplated because this is what it means. God is just, means he's good. He's going to always judge evil, all evil he's judging. But because he's the one who justifies, he's going to, because he's exceedingly good, he's going to forgive those who do evil. So he's going to punish all evil and forgive those who do evil without compromising his goodness. Now, how do you do that? Well, that answer is in verse 25 of Romans. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. So God unleashed all of his wrath against all evil onto the world and then sent Christ to stand in front of the wrath of God so that it would be absorbed into the body of Christ and not fall on to your soul. So God both judged evil and protected us from his judgment at the same time because he's exceedingly good. He accomplished both justice and mercy. We'll say it like this. Through the cross, sin is judged and sinners are set free. How wonderful is the goodness of God. So here's our summary. God created a good world. Didn't have to do that. Why did he create a good world? So that we'd experience pleasure as he experiences pleasure in the Trinity. So he created when he didn't have to create. Then we messed it up, and he didn't have to fix it, but he fixed it by absorbing the penalty for our rebellion on himself. God is exceedingly good. He restores us rather than rejecting us. Now listen, when I say God restores us, I mean he really restores us. Remember what happened in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve ate from the tree. They were no longer allowed to live in the garden because they couldn't eat from the tree of life or they would remain separated from God forever. This is what the book of Genesis says. He, man, must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So he's in a separated state, full of shame, can't eat from the tree of life or you're going to stay like this forever. So God in his goodness booted them out of the garden. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden, and he placed on the east side of the garden a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. But now, because Christ died, the Garden of Eden is back open for us. That's the goodness of God. Look how the book of Revelation ends. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. God's throne from the throne, beautiful, clear, crystal river. And look what we find by the river. 
on each side of the river stood the tree of life. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And in verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes and have rights to eat from the tree of life from the Garden of Eden. How gloriously good is God to give us home again of unending pleasure. So as we conclude this three-week study on the goodness of God, uh, which is part of our bigger series on, on the core beliefs, I want, to, I want to look, I want to close out the message today with five responses to the goodness of God. Only going to do four today. I'm, I'm planning to save one more to, to next week. So, But I, I see five ways to respond to the goodness of God. Number one is receive His goodness. God does not grow weary with our asking. We do not burden Him with our burdens. In fact, the more we come to Him with request, the more He is pleased that we have come. This is the way Jesus said it in Matthew 7. If then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? Obviously, you can see this argument is from the lesser to the greater. What I mean by that, I hate to have to do this again, but best way for me to understand it, if I, holding my grandson, I am evil, have all sorts of evil things in my head, greed, worry, lust, anger, name it, there. And yet every compulsion in my body is to be good to this little child. How do I do that? I'm evil and I want to be good to one who is a child. And so God says, how much more does God than me, who is not evil, want to be good to me? Then Jesus says the same promise in Luke, but he rephrases it in one way and puts an interesting phrase at the end to show us the highest expression of something you could ask from God. Luke eleven thirteen. If then you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now in Matthew, Jesus said God will give you good gifts. Here He says the highest expression of the or the greatest of God's gifts would be to be filled and overflowing with the Spirit. So no matter how stained you are, no matter how addicted you are, no matter how heartbroken you are, God says, I want to give you the supernatural power and life of my Holy Spirit to give you new strength and joy to make it all the way to the garden of Eden. You know, listen, the most difficult thing to do in life when you're hurting is to ask God, show me an expression of your goodness. Give me the power of the Holy Spirit. It is amazing. You would think you're hurting. You would be begging God, get me through this. But when you're hurting, your flesh 
Stiff arms, God. You just try to work harder, think harder, worry harder, send more. Lisa's mentoring a young woman. She's been in our life a long time. She's experienced extraordinary loss in her life from a child to a husband, a marriage. And she wrote Lisa this week and said, I pray all the time for God to do something good in my life. But it seems like every time I do, something else happens. So I've kind of stopped. Do you relate to her? Lisa said, right back, it's just three phrases. Don't stop. I get it. But don't stop asking. Everything within you when you're in pain just wants to believe it's all over. Don't stop asking for the fullness of the Holy Spirit to change your life. Second reaction to the goodness of God is to repent. If you're looking for a good definition of sin, I would describe it as this. Sin is forgetting the goodness of God. That's why Psalm 103 says, don't forget the goodness of God. Psalm 103, praise the Lord my soul and forget not all of his goodness. So then, once he says that, then the rest of the passage, the author lists the goodness of God. What he does for you. He forgives all your sins. Not some of them. But the ones that you did last week, they've been stuck in your life for a long time, and you may likely do them again this week. He even forgives those sins included in all your sins. How good is God? He heals all your diseases. Obviously, this is what is going to happen in heaven when we eat from the tree of life by the crystal river. It says there's healing for the nation, so all diseases will be healed. But can we not stop and just pause in the 21st century that God so often intervenes through the gift of technology to heal diseases now? Friday morning, Lisa and I get a call from her father. Lisa's mother had a stroke in the bed, couldn't speak, right side not moving. They called the ambulance, get her to the Medical College of Georgia, Brain surgeon sticks something in her brain, removes the clot. Lisa walks in <clears throat> four hours later, and her mother says, what are you doing here? Uh, so there are many times where God does heal our diseases with the gifts of the 21st century, and ultimately he'll heal them all for every believer. He redeems your life from the pit. And crowns you with love and compassion. Can you imagine this scenario here? You've fallen into a pit. You can't get out. Created a situation that is not solvable in your own strength. You're filthy. And the loving, compassionate arms of God reach out in your dirty state. Pick you up and set you in the river of His holy, cleansing love. And the psalmist continues. Don't forget the goodness of God. Don't forget that he satisfies your desires with good things. I know that we're not completely satisfied on earth right now, especially because of pain. But can you not 
look back on your life of all of your satisfying experiences. It may be the Cheetos that you ate last night, the coffee you drank this morning, the hug you received from a family member. How many things God gives to satisfy you and again, ultimately giving heaven for complete and perfect satisfaction. So sin forgets all of that. That's what sin is. It's forgetting the goodness of God or forsaking, turning from the goodness of God. Or maybe a broader definition of sin would be sin is using God's good gifts for evil purposes. I have a I would be like me having a healthy body, using it for immorality. Me having a good job and spending the money on drugs. Or me having a tongue and the good gift of language, acquisition, and using it to spread lies. Sin is using the good gifts of God for evil purposes. Third, oh, but how about this? Even though we use for evil purposes, look at God. He would rather forgive us than judge us. So God in his kindness or his goodness, even then in the middle of our sin, provokes us to repentance. Third reaction to the goodness of God. Think about it. Contemplate the goodness of God. The Bible says those who look to him are radiant. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm thirty. For even during times of prosperity, people don't stop and marvel at the goodness of God. Your joy depends on your marveling at the goodness of God, recognizing, thanking God for his goodness. That's when you become a radiant person. And this is more important than ever to gaze upon the goodness of God. Read your Bible. Have a devotion book. Play songs. But more than ever, in this world of corruption that seems to just inundate with every piece of information we get, you have to contemplate the goodness of God or you'll become a sad, cynical person. I loved Mary Higgins' Facebook post late last night is, or yesterday afternoon when I read it, she posted this picture of this bumblebee. I don't know if this is her pet bumblebee. She just took a picture of it. And then after that, very insightful words about the contemplation of God. Instead of going to the dark side, lamenting the state of our situation, or blasting out on social media, or, or even living life in fear, I'm looking for God's moments of wow singing off-key to my favorite tunes, breathing fresh air, and thanking God for all I have. Today is a good day. Final for today, final reaction to the goodness of God is trust. One of the most enjoyable things I did during this entire <clears throat> series on core beliefs, especially when we did the power and wisdom and beauty of God, I think I pretty much described every chemical process and every animal on the planet, but I know that I didn't cover birds. 
The one animal that does what we all want to be able to do, and that is to fly. They are a masterpiece of engineering, the perfect flying machine. Breast muscles are enormous. In some birds, the breast muscles are 33% of their total body weight. It's amazing how God has built birds. This pelican will often reach a wingspan of six feet, yet in order to fly, the skeletal system of a pelican often only weighs five ounces. So flight is possible. In fact, the feathers of a bird are often, they weigh more than the bones weigh. And speaking of feathers, they insulate a bird from the sun's heat and protect it from winter's cold and waterproof the body. The feathers are engineered to perfect specifications, each of them slightly different length, each of them connected to a nerve that connects it to a specific muscle, making flight possible. Birds have a unique lung system that they're able to keep themselves oxygenated. That, they, that is, they can oxygenate air both when they're inhaling and exhaling because their lungs have a back door. That is why you never see a bird after a long flight doing this. <gasps> Always receiving oxygen because of the way that it is built. No other bird amazes us probably like hummingbirds. Extraordinarily strong wings attached by a flexible swivel joint that allows their wings to beat in a figure eight, causing them to move forward and backward and sideways, and no other bird can. Their wings, when they're hovering 50 times per second, they beat. Flying forward, they beat at 80 times per second. The hummingbird's heart beats at 21 times per second. means that it requires, it must eat twice its body weight every day in food. So when I think about God's delight in birds, I think about this verse in Matthew chapter 10. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. And I love this verse because it comes at the end of a section in Matthew 10 where Jesus said you're going to suffer for the gospel. You're going to die for the gospel. I had a conference call this morning at 7 o'clock with about 20 believers from India. Ronnie and I were on there. The hornbuckles were on there. And we know they're going to suffer for the gospel. And God says, but when you're suffering, understand that you're worth far more to me than these beautiful birds that I create, these beautiful birds that I daily feed. You're far worth more than the birds that I definitely love. This verse became the foundation of one of the great songs in Christian history. It was written by Sevilla Martin. She was visiting friends in uh, New York in 1905. The couple that she was visiting were the Doolittles. They were both handicapped. The, the wife had been bedridden for 20 years. The husband could only make it to work by reeling himself in a wheelchair. And while they were visiting the Doolittles, Sevilla Martin's husband said, How do you stay so joyful? And her husband said, We know that God's eye is on the sparrow, and he watches over me. And sometimes it's just better 
to hear Scripture sung than it is said. Hi, Hope Point. My name is Beth Spangler, and I'm the Director of Worship Ministry at First Baptist Church of North Augusta, the church where your pastor grew up. Though it's been a good many years since he attended a service in person, he was able to worship with us by way of Facebook a few weeks ago during one of our Wednesday night worship gatherings. That night, during our hymn sing, I sang His Eyes on the Sparrow, a song that has always been meaningful to me and is obviously meaningful to Richard as well. A few days after that night of worship, he contacted our team and asked if there was any way that I'd be able to sing it again for you. I'm so grateful for the opportunity through the gift of technology to share it with you all today. As you know, this song was written from a heart that knew great suffering. And I'm certain that today it'll be heard by hearts that are also suffering. It's my prayer that the lyrics of this song and the scripture that supports it will encourage you as you cling to this most meaningful truth that the Lord who tenderly watches every bird is tenderly watching you and me.
I sing because I'm happy, and I sing because I'm free. How is it possible to say those words when circumstances are surrounding your life that make you feel anything but free? I'll close with this illustration. Kayla Mueller, humanitarian worker, at age 24 was serving the Lord in Syria or in Turkey. When one of her team members said, would you come with me to Syria to work in a hospital? As they crossed the border from Turkey to Syria, ISIS captured their car, kidnapped Kayla, kept her imprisoned, tortured, 18 months. She would die there. Eight months into her captivity, she smuggled a letter out to her parents. And she told them, I'm grateful more than ever for God's place in my life. ISIS cannot control me because I belong to God. And this is the phrase I want to leave you with. She said, I am tenderly cradled in freefall. I have learned that even in prison, I can be free. Let's pray. Father, I ask today that those who are in free fall today would look at the birds created by the hands of a sovereign God And remember that the creative hands of God and the crucified hands of God cradle us even in free fall. You are worth or you are with every bird until its final flight. You are with every believer until you take him to the garden of heaven. We are cradled and free fall. We can be free in our suffering. We can be free in our failures. We can be free in our frustrations because the one who has us is our Father in heaven. We are tenderly cradled in free fall. And that's why we're free. Father, would you free somebody today from guilt by turning to Christ? Would you free somebody of their stains by having them turn to Christ? Would you free somebody from addiction by having them ask for the Holy Spirit? Would you free somebody from despair by opening their life to the power of the healing work of the Spirit so they will be free even when everything around them presses in?
God, free us today to enjoy the goodness of God as seen in Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen.